remember how the market dropped in 2008? Because right now I'm just seeing so many developers buy stuff speculating that the market will continue to rise. So I constantly remind my team, remember 2008. Best ever listeners, before we get into today's episode, I want to ask you, do you have a strategy right now where you are getting leads that come into your inbox while you're sleeping? Do you have a strategy where you are optimized with both Google AdWords and SEO, search engine optimization? If not, then guess what? Today's your lucky day. We've got a free strategy session just for you, and it's with Dan Barrett. If you recognize his name, he was a guest on episode 565, and he is the only certified Google partner agency that works exclusively with real estate investors. Go to adwordsnerds.com forward slash strategy and get a free strategy session to learn with him how to implement an online strategy for your market in both SEO and Google AdWords. Go to adwordsnerds.com forward slash strategy. Best ever listeners, welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is a show where we cut out the fluff and we only talk about the best advice that moves your real estate investing business forward. This is also the world's longest running daily real estate podcast, spoken Barbara Corcoran, Robert Kiyosaki, Jay Papazan, the co-author of The One Thing, and a whole bunch of others. With us today, we're going to be talking to someone who started with $10,000 savings and has developed over $10 million worth of real estate. How you doing? Slava Men. Doing great, Joe. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Nice to have you on the show and excited to hear your story, a little bit about Slava, and then he'll get into it in more detail. He is the principal at Labrador Real Estate, and he's a contributing writer at Inc. Magazine. He guest lectures where he went to school at BU and MIT and writes for, as I mentioned, Inc. Magazine. Since 2013, Labrador Real Estate's developed over $6.5 million in real estate. And in total, he has developed over $10 million worth of real estate based in Boston, Massachusetts. And you can say hi to him at his website, which is in the show notes link. With that being said, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on now? Sure. Backing way up, I was born in the former Soviet Union, which is actually a place where it's illegal to be an entrepreneur. And my dad was illegally an entrepreneur there. And then we moved to this country when I was six months old. And I've been starting businesses for as far back as I can remember, selling rocks when I was five years old, started my first company while I was in college. And I guess now I consider myself a both a parallel entrepreneur and a serial entrepreneur. <laughs> so I started a venture capital-backed company. And then real estate for me had always been kind of this thing on the side. And sometimes I even didn't really talk about it because the VCs didn't really want to hear that I had a girlfriend on the side, which was this real estate. So I started doing real estate in 2007. I started investing and buying multifamilies in a lower income neighborhood outside of Boston. Um, and what it allowed me to do was allowed me basically to never have to take a job after I finished business school. So I was looking at working at Google. I was thinking about if I go into management consulting and it all just sounded really unappealing. So I just started selling off the first two family I had and that gave me another one year of horizon. And then I sold off another three family and then I had another six months of horizon. So basically it just gave me the freedom to do whatever I wanted to do. And what I want to do is start companies. And then about a year ago, I just said, you know what, this tech startup thing, it's fun, but it's really, really stressful. Meanwhile, this real estate thing is working really, really well. So I went full time on Labrador and yeah, it's been a lot of fun. 
you said you bought your first place in 2007, then you started selling them off, and basically it afforded you the opportunity to live your life and continue your entrepreneurial ventures for another year. How did you have the money to buy them in the first place? So the very first one, I had $10,000 of my own. I borrowed another $20,000 from my dad. I paid him back an 8% return, which is a good deal for both of us. And the very first place I bought was a two-family for $110,000. And then I just kind of did a cash-out refinance, bought another one, and rolled up. And I did this all while in grad school. So I had four properties by the time I graduated. And then I started kind of selling them off because I also decided that I don't want to be rich when I'm old. I want to be rich when I'm young. <laughs> so doing buy and holds would make me rich when I'm old, but flips make me rich when I'm young. So I kind of focused on flips. What year, if you have a rough range, that would be good. You don't need to give me exact. When did you sell the properties? Bought the first one 2007 to 2009, I was acquiring. Mm -hmm. And then I started business school in 2009, and then 2011 I graduated, and then I sold them all off within about a year and a half. Uh, those first four that I bought, I sold 2009, 2010, 2011, 2012. The proceeds from those, were they invested in something that you currently have now? They were invested in keeping me from having to take a real job, and then I also invested the other proceeds into properties that I flipped that are in Boston in a neighborhoods rather than C minus neighborhoods. Okay. So the properties that you flipped, so then you flipped it and now you've gotten the proceeds from those properties, correct? Exactly. Yep. Got it. And are you reinvesting them into something else or are you? So now we're kind of an up and running business. We have six people. So we do about eight deals per year and I keep a war chest of the money. I basically, I invest $0 in the stock market every bit of profit we make after paying salaries goes right back into the business. Got it. Okay. And those eight deals per year you do are fix and flips? Yes. Okay. What do you look for in a deal? It sounds like you're very selective if you're doing eight a year. So how are you evaluating a deal you move forward on? Basically, we've been doing this kind of long enough that we know how much we spend if it's a gut rehab. We know we're spending about $150 a square foot in Boston for a gut rehab. And then we know if it's a surface rehab, we're spending $50 per square foot for surface rehab. And then if it's in between, we spend in between 50 to 150. So we've gotten to the point where we can analyze any one of our deals within about two minutes, basically knowing what's the square footage of the property. Is it a gut rehab? Is it a surface rehab? And then we have a good idea of what things sell at price per square foot on the back end. So as long as the numbers make sense for us, we know we can do the deal. And then we have certain profit numbers. So basically, let's say we buy a three family for $400,000. And let's say we know the renovation is going to cost $400,000 as well. We're into it for 800. Our numbers basically that we want to hit is we want to make roughly $200,000 on a deal like that, because we're trying to have a certain return on investment and also a certain minimum profit for the deal. How many deals have you done roughly? In the range of 30. What's been your least profitable deal or it's lost you money? I have yet to have one that's lost money, but there was one that was an absolute nightmare that I made it out by the skin of my teeth. And it was the second house I ever bought. It was also two family in this kind of lower to middle income neighborhood. And after buying it, I underestimated the amount of work it would take. And after renovating it, it just didn't cash flow the way I wanted it to. And I said, you know what? I just got to get rid of this thing. So I sold it. And luckily, there was a buyer that was driving around. And while I was doing 
lawn care on the house. I was so broke on this one, I couldn't pay anyone to do the lawn care or anything like that. So I was doing lawn care. He was driving around. He was looking at my house. I sold it to him, and I think I made three to $5,000 profit on that. Had there been a realtor on that, then I would have lost money. So basically, I got lucky on that one. What did you do? Because I imagine with your MIT background, you're an analytical person. What did you do to shatter your model and build it anew after experiencing that? It was actually less of the spreadsheet. It was more a learning experience on the emotional side. The reason I was in that deal in the first place was because I overpaid. And when you overpay, then there's no model that's going to help you out. And the reason I overpaid was because I got emotional about it. This is back in 2008. It came on MLS at a really low price. I got into bidding war and I really wanted to win. And I won. My prize was a crappy house that I overpaid. (laughs) So basically, economists call it winner's curse. So once the ink dried on the closing, I thought to myself, what have I done here? This place is a disaster. So it was just a learning about not getting emotional about it and that winning in a bidding war isn't actually winning. Do you have any safeguards against getting caught up in a bidding war or is it just a conscious thought process that you've now trained your mind to adhere to? It's something that I actually still run into now because I'm a very emotional person. I get very excited about things. I'm an optimist. I think a lot of entrepreneurs are. So what I need to do now is I just have to set my price before I go into any kind of situation and then just never go into that price. And the spreadsheet where I have the calculations that tells me how much I'm paying for the property, how much it'll sell for, and how much it'll cost me to renovate, and then that's the ceiling price. And then my stopgap is I tell the other people on my team, this is the most we're going to pay for the place. We won't pay $1 more than this. And then we just have to do that no matter what happens, no matter how much the realtor comes back to me and says, hey, I think you can really sell for more than you think you can. I just set my internal numbers. And the thing that's hard about that is that oftentimes I don't buy a place and I end up losing. And the other developer who bought the place, I see he sells it for higher than I actually put into my spreadsheet. But when the market goes down, which it will, we've been riding this cycle now for more than eight years, I'm still going to be in business. And I'm not sure if the other developer will be because a lot of developers are overpaying right now for properties. You said you have six people on your team. What position was the hardest to hire for? Two. But I'll say the one that we're struggling with right now is actually the acquisitions person. Someone that can work with sellers and buy properties directly from them. I need somebody who's analytical, but someone that can also go into these neighborhoods where it's families that have lived there for 50 years and can really relate with those families. So the acquisitions person right now has been a really hard hire for us. And how much does an acquisitions person get compensated a year? We have two job descriptions out, and basically there's two profiles that we're willing to hire for. So one is like the just out of college, maybe one year of sales experience. Their on-target earnings are going to be sixty to $70,000. Their base will be thirty dollars to $40,000. And then the more senior version is basically that same person, but now they're maybe five years out of college, and their base will still be low. I always pay low bases, so the base will be maybe $50,000 but their on-target earnings will be 120 to 140,000. And how do you structure the profit sharing or the deal sharing in that so that they have a, a lower base but a higher upside? We pay that 50,000 divided by 12 is roughly what we pay per month. So um, they get that no matter what. And then the profit share we try to align incentives and we try to keep it simple. So they get roughly half a percent for any acquisition. 
and then they get another half a point on the sale on the back end. Got it. Okay. Makes sense. When you've built your company, I mean, you've built it up so that you have six, are they full-time people in, in-house or do you have virtual people? Six full-time in-house right now. Six full-time in-house. Did you look at it in a way that you could build your company virtually and cut down on costs at all? Or was it always going to be an in-person model? I would love to do things virtually. I haven't had a lot of success with it beyond just remedial tasks of data entry. But half the time, I'm virtual. So the reason I love this business is because I travel for roughly three to six months of the year. And I am able to run the business while kite surfing the Dominican Republic, which I do one month each year. And my wife and I just spent three months traveling cross country in a small camper van while running the business remotely. So I've been able to be virtual, but my team has been local. I mentioned at the beginning that you've done over $10 million worth of development in real estate. Is that fix and flips? It's a combination of doing fix and flips. And I'm also counting the buy and holds that I've had that I've sold off. Okay, got it. What's your best real estate investing advice ever? Actually, I'm going to say this one. Remember 2008. I'm 36 years old. I started doing this when I was 27 years old. And I got to watch the downturn. And I got to jump in right after the downturn. And I'm very, very lucky. And I constantly remind my team, remember how the market dropped in 2008? Because right now, I'm just seeing so many developers buy stuff, speculating that the market will continue to rise. And if, in my case, if the market drops 5 10%, that's the difference between us making a profit on a deal or losing money on a deal. So I constantly remind my team, remember 2008. And other than telling them, remember 2008, I mean, what action steps do you want them to take? We buffer each one of our deals and we're super conservative on comparable analysis. So realtors will constantly send us stuff and say, the condo is going to sell for dollars $700,000. I'll go look at comps and I'll look at the ones that are selling for four fifty five hundred thousand. And I'll work off those comps instead of the dollars $700,000 comps. How do you win deals that way? It's hard, but we just basically cherry pick the best deals. And we're doing a lot of direct mail. We're working with Justin Silverio's company, Open Letter Marketing, and we're sending roughly 8,000 direct mail pieces per month. So that helps us get access to direct lead to sellers. And there's also oftentimes we are now known in our neighborhoods because we treat our neighborhoods very well. So we have a great reputation. So neighbors will come to us and say, hey, Slavo, we're thinking about selling our place. We'd love to work with you. And I'll always let the sellers know we probably won't pay top dollar. There's going to be somebody else who's going to pay a little bit more for it. And there's times when that's the most important thing to the seller. And I'll wish them the best in doing that. But they work with us because we make sure that we're an absolute pleasure to work with. The deals that you've closed on, let's say the last three, did the leads come from direct mail? One of them came through direct mail. Another one, the seller that came in through direct mail introduced us to the neighbor across the street, which is the best introduction you can get because they said, I just sold my house to this company. I love working with them. You should sell your house to them too. And then the third one came through a uh, fellow developer who didn't have the capacity to take another deal. What does that fellow developer get compensated? 15000 in that case. Fifteen k. And how did you come up with that number? He asked for it. 
and the numbers made sense to me. And I don't care how much I pay a bird dog. I'll pay him as much as I possibly can as long as it still meets our numbers. You ready for the best ever lightning round? I'm ready. All right, let's do it. First, a quick word from our best ever partners. Are you wanting to get some Dallas, Texas investment properties at steep discounts? Titanium Investments provides solutions for wholesaling investing. They've got some properties. Go subscribe to their newsletter today. Go to titaniumprops.com. That's T-I-T-A-N-I-U-M-P-R-O-P-S.com. What's the best ever book you've read? It's the one I'm reading right now is Unique Ability. It's about uncovering your superpowers. And once you find the things that you're really, really good at, you then surround yourself with people who can help you with things that you aren't good at. And then when you can focus on your superpowers, you just get even better at those superpowers and you have endless energy doing them. What are your superpowers? Deal hunting, relationships, and vision. Reminds me of Tim Ferriss talking about we have to be unique before we can be incrementally better. I totally agree. He was actually the first person in his book, 4-Hour Workweek. We're taught as kids strengths and weaknesses and work on your weaknesses, but that's actual total bullcrap because you can work on your weaknesses and at best you'll get mediocre. But if you work on your strengths, they can turn into superpowers. Then you can have people around you help you with your weaknesses. Completely agree. I've, <laughs> I've seen that play out in my entrepreneurial businesses as well. What's the best ever personal growth experience? What'd you learn from it? My most recent one was actually leaving my venture back startup. And I'm hesitating long to say that because I've actually haven't talked about it publicly, but I started a company, I brought on investors, and I truly believe we were going to take over the world. The company is doing quite well, but I just totally burnt out. And I had to call 19 investors and tell them, I know we took your money to grow this company, but I can't grow this company anymore. And what I learned from it was that it actually wasn't nearly as bad as I expected it to be. Giving people bad news isn't nearly as bad as I expected it to be because I was honest and transparent with them the whole way through. And because I made sure that even though I was giving them bad news that I'm leaving the company, I had some good news too that my co-founder is actually great at running this company. He's going to take it over. So I guess the learning experience there was that I put so much stress on myself in terms of giving people bad news. And it was really big bad news because I'd raised $1.8 million that once I realized that being transparent and being human, people understand what burnout means. They were actually very supportive. And you were also leaving the company in the hands of your co-founder and the company is doing well, correct? Right. I made sure that I tied up all the loose ends and the company was in a good place before I left. I wasn't leaving a sinking ship. I was leaving a ship that was under full sail. It would have been a different conversation, all 19 of them, had you no longer had the $1.8 or $9 million and you were calling to inform them that there was no longer any investment dollars remaining. One of my VCs said to me, he said, you know, Slava, the way you're handling it, I really respect it. There's a lot of people that throw the keys on the table and say, I'm out. I can't handle it anymore. Mm -hmm. And in your case, I'm doing that. And he actually asked me what I'm starting next because he wanted to invest in it. <laughs> so he's actually going to be investing in future real estate deals. Best ever deal you've done. Financially, we bought a condo in Cambridge that was in a basement for $35,000. We put 100k into it and we sold it for 300. So financially that was the best deal. What's the best ever way you like to give back? I volunteer in the communities that we development in because so I teach entrepreneurship once per week within one of the Boston Public High Schools. So I get to work with high school kids who are very much at risk. They have 
older siblings in jail and single moms and so on, and using entrepreneurship as a vehicle to make school relevant. What's the biggest mistake you've made so far in real estate or business? I don't know if it's the biggest, but it's、uh, fresh in my mind. Our last sales and acquisitions hire, I rushed the hire. I basically did not take the time to vet him enough. We did a short test project that was half a day, and then after that, I said, "Let's hire him." But what I do now is I do test projects that are two weeks long、mm. before hiring somebody, and that way I can really be comprehensive. And any warning signs that I didn't catch in that first half day test project, I'll catch that in the two week. I call it a two week paid interview. So、uh, I usually I can catch the warning signs that way. Yeah, a lot of people won't even do a test period. They'll just roll right in with that employee and then. Have to do a messy breakup. Yeah, and it's just so expensive. I've fired three people in my many companies I've started. It's so expensive financially, time-wise, and emotionally. It's the worst part of the job. So I take extreme measures not to ever have to fire anybody. And if they're underperforming, I've learned to move them out very quickly. But if they're underperforming, it's not their fault. It's my fault. It means I did the wrong hire. If a best ever listener wants to be a contributing writer at Inc. Magazine, how do they become one? I didn't get there right away. I've been reading Inc. since I was in high school, so I, I love the magazine. And what I did was I started off by blogging and by writing for smaller blogs, which are easier to get into. And then I had a track record, and I could point to here are other articles I've written. And then I just looked at every single connection I had to somebody that worked at Inc. And when I saw an opening, I rushed that opening and、I、said, "Here's the other things I've written," and they took me on. And how many articles do you write for them? Say every six months. I try to do one article every week or two weeks. I don't get paid for it. I do it because I enjoy it and because I intend to write a book in the future. It also I do it because when you write, at least for me, it allows me to crystallize my thoughts and crystallize my philosophies. So I do it roughly two to three times per month. And have you seen any tangible business results other than what you just described, as far as crystallizing your thoughts as a result of writing on the magazine platform? I can't quantify them, but I can qualify them. I have all kinds of friends and all kinds of other people coming out of the woodwork and saying to me, "I really love the article you wrote recently about how to achieve financial freedom. Really inspiring for me." Or I really love the article you wrote on prioritizing because I'm not spending enough time with my kids. And I get such a great feeling when I do that, and it encourages me to do more of it. I had a professor that said, "Marketing, you're not able to measure the results of it right away." But I know that when I do this over time, that I'm gonna be able to measure the results. What's the best place the best ever listeners can reach you? I'm getting more active on Twitter, so my Twitter handle is at Slava Men. Well, thank you for being on the show, sharing your insight and how you started out with non real estate focus, and now you're focused more on real estate. How you approach the analysis with the gut rehab, dollar one hundred and fifty bucks a square foot, service rehab, fifty bucks. What do you pay for it? What can you sell it for? And what's it cost to renovate? Super straightforward stuff. Your conservative approach when you look at the opportunities and the need to get all those leads coming in because it's such a conservative approach. And how you do that is direct mail, and then according to the last three deals, it was direct mail and then referrals from someone you did work with, and then a bird dog, so to speak, with a colleague of yours. And then, you know, also talking about some of your lessons learned along with the venture startups and the focus of being really clear about what we're good at, what's our unique ability, 
and then having team members to help us with those other areas so that we can all stand out and really focus on our unique abilities, which I wholeheartedly believe in. So thanks so much for being on the show. Hope you have a best ever day and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Joe. Are you wanting to get some Dallas, Texas investment properties at steep discounts? Titanium Investments provides solutions for wholesaling investing. They've got some properties. Go subscribe to their newsletter today. Go to titaniumprops.com. That's T-I-T-A-N-I-U-M-P-R-O-P-S.com.